Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with August Felker from Overly Risk Strategies. Why do acquirers need an insurance review? So when you're looking to buy a business, you're doing all types of uh, diligence on financials, technology, the customers. It's a lot of things you want to look at. And one of those items is that, that's really important to also look at is insurance. And on the insurance side of things, there's really two big categories, I would say. One is the commercial insurance, which would be like workers' comp and auto insurance, general liability. And, and the second one would be employee benefits. And when you come in and do a review on the insurance, many times that insurance hasn't been quoted out in a long time. Many times there are coverages that might be missing. And also many times there might be surprises that uh, might not be represented as part of the financials, meaning that maybe the insurance is going to go up because they have really poor claims history, or maybe you need to add a bunch of coverages in year one when you buy the business, which is going to impact your 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 financials. So it's really important to kind of get, get your arms around all that stuff as you're looking to buy a business and trying to figure out what it's going to look like in the first year. The second big reason for a review is many of our clients are working with lenders, and the lenders want to make sure that the insurance is all organized and in good shape because they have a financial interest in the business. So what we also do is we, we provide the lender with sort of that thumbs up, say, hey, we've looked at it, we've got the insurance all organized for closing, and it looks good and it meets all of your requirements. So those are the big, I would say, two big reasons why you need to you know, do an insurance review as you're looking at an acquisition. Perfect. Thank you so much, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood and & Strong for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a quarterly print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest in this episode is Greg Geronimus, co-founder and managing partner of Footbridge Partners, a traditional search investment firm. This is my second episode with Greg, the first being episode 17 back in April 2020, where Greg shared his experience acquiring and operating his search company's smart tours and launching Footbridge. Well, two years later, Greg and his partner David have raised that fund and are halfway through their investment period with a budding portfolio of searchers. In this second episode, Greg shares his view on the role of a search investor, 
misconceptions in traditional search, the risk in buying at larger multiples, and a few wild stories from his time running Smart Tours. Enjoy. It's been since April 2020 that you were on the podcast. So right as COVID was starting and I was episode 17, so I hadn't even gone on the weekly podcast yet. I was still a monthly doing all the audio editing myself. I remember editing your episode and trying to figure out how Audacity works still and all that sort of stuff. So it's certainly a lot's changed since then. At that point, you think you uh, were about to launch Footbridge or, or in the process of doing that. And today you've invested in quite a few searchers and I'm sure have learned a ton along the way. For those who didn't hear episode 17, which we'll reference, but for those who didn't hear that episode, what's kind of the, the quick 60 second of your background and how you got to Footbridge? Sure. And thanks uh, for having me again. It's, it's fun to be back and can't believe it's been almost two years. So by, by way of background, I grew up in New York City, helped with my family business growing up, which was in the healthcare services space, but wanted to give finance a try after college, worked at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years in one of their private equity arms, but pretty quickly knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, so that that brought me to business school, figured I'd, I'd forge my entrepreneurial path over the two years where I had some extra time on my hands and learned to search, fell in love with the concept, connected with my friend and still business partner 10 years later, David Rosner. We decided to go out and do a quasi-traditional search. Uh, ended up buying a business in the travel space, uh, a company called Smart Tours that we bought well and scaled up and eventually sold uh, four years after we bought it. And as we were transitioning out of Smart Tours, we started investing personally in search and fell in love with that. The process of mentoring and coaching and, and working really collaboratively with searchers was just a blast. And, and that inspired us to start Footbridge Partners or the second iteration of Footbridge Partners, where we work closely with a small sub subset of traditional search fund entrepreneurs. And we've acquired five companies over the last two years. I've worked with six searchers uh, and continue to add to our crop of searchers and, and look for great companies to acquire. Yeah, that's awesome. One question I'd love to ask you more about some of the investments you've made. But one question I had prior to that was, you obviously have run a business before for four years, Smart Tours. I, I would love to know how much did that experience help in your advisement of other searchers? Because most companies, like every company is very, very different and unique, but there's enough commonality between them that I'm sure it was useful. I'd love to hear how much commonality was there between your experience at Smart Tours and how helpful you could be with searchers and other businesses. Perhaps there were certain areas of the business you could be most helpful in some where it was very unique to the business and your experience didn't apply nearly as well. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how your experience at Smart Tours has helped and connected with other searchers. Absolutely. I think it's been critical. I, I don't think I would be very good at my job today at all if I had not had the operating experience, whether it's discussing an issue around hiring or or firing, or if it's about how do you launch a new business line? How do you how do you deal with the stress of needing to shut down due to the pandemic? Not that thankfully we didn't have to deal with that during our operating days, but you become accustomed 
when you're operating to just uh, curveball after curveball and then getting brushed back with a with a hundred mile per hour fastball and and being able to share the experiences that we had, the perspective that we developed, you know, absolutely critical. And I would say 90% of the issues that small businesses face are are pretty similar across across industries. Now there's a lot in that that 10% that that can be quite different, but but there's so many commonalities that I think it's been incredibly helpful for my my job now as more as mentor and coach and, and board member for these companies. Is there a particular experience or event at Smart Tours that you've referenced the most in helping searchers? You know, I think, and again, we didn't we didn't have to navigate uh, the coronavirus pandemic, but we did deal with Ebola and Zika and terrorism events. And so Smart Tours, just to take a step back, we sent people, typically older Americans, to exotic destinations all around the world. We were pretty diversified across across the globe, which was a great thing from a business standpoint, but it, it basically ensured that we would anything that you'd read about on the front page of the newspaper that was going on overseas was at least a baseline headache for us. So got accustomed to getting a phone call in the middle of the night saying, we got to get people out of this country. There's This is happening or all our trips to Ukraine are being canceled because Russia's starting a war. Uh, this was back in 2014. It looks like it might happen again. And so I, I think just being able to share their perspective of they're gonna. It, this is not going to be a straight line. There are going to be lots of bumps in the road, and try to control what you can control. Don't try to don't try to fix some you know, event that some macro event or some geopolitical event that's far beyond your control. I think sharing that perspective, I believe, has been you know particularly helpful in you know, connecting and, you know, and, and guiding the, the searchers that we've been working with. Is there a particular event within all of those chaotic events that you remember the most that has burned in your mind of trying to get someone out of a, a dangerous area? I think, I think, thankfully, there wasn't anything particularly dramatic. There was nobody within a few miles of, of an absolutely awful event. But probably the first one of, of just having to cancel an entire season of Ukraine river cruises. Believe it or not, we had a pretty big Ukraine river cruise program. That was a decent revenue generator back in the day. Just that was the first first blow eight months after we bought the company, having to refund a, a nice chunk of change and and just see all that revenue go out the door. That was that was the first of several, but but yeah, not a fun experience. Yeah, definitely not fun. So within your footbridge investments, have you invested in any companies that have that same exposure? Or are you trying to steer clear of companies that have international chaotic event risks? Well, thankfully, we haven't invested in anything or we didn't invest in anything pre-pandemic in international travel. We do own a business that that serves the, the tour operator market. So along with Betsy... Brand, actually now Betsy Harbison with Forest Park Capital. We bought a company called Soft Trip, which was formerly a subsidiary of our of Smart Tour's largest competitor, uh, a company called Gate One Travel. They had built their own 
basically ERP software system to originally power their own business and and then subsequently started selling it to other tour operators. And we bought that business from them. So they, they serve companies that in turn send people overseas. So we have some indirect exposure, but nothing as directly related to international travel as, as we were once in. Are there any themes that you've noticed or developed or pursued within some of the investments you've made? Or have you, for the most part, let the searchers just find whatever companies that they find most interesting and that you agree are a, a good business to acquire? I'd say it's been a mix. Um, we certainly uh, try to give the searchers that we work with a lot of latitude, and I think we do. Uh, we're uh, working with them at every step of the way very closely, try to be as helpful as we can. That's a big part of our of our thesis at the footbridge level is to work with a smaller number of searchers and be really engaged, really the best partners that a searcher could ever ask for. So there is, there's definitely some, a lot of latitude. At the same time, if you look at our five investments that we've made, operating company investments that we made, one of them is in the med spa space. And my family business growing up, I said healthcare services, but in particular, it was cosmetic dermatology business. So quite related. Another business is called the change companies in the behavioral health substance use disorder treatment category. And my wife is an addiction psychiatrist and I, I'm inundated in, in her world. And I, I already referenced Soft Trip, which is a which is a carve out of one of our old competitors from the Smart Tours days. So three out of the five businesses that we that we've bought have been pretty related to either our search company that we bought, operated and sold, or you know, very, very close sort of family. You know, for me, so I, I and I don't think that's an accident, and I think it speaks to how closely we work with the the searchers and are sharing ideas and what sharing what we find interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question later about the different roles of investors over time, but I think it might actually fit better here. I've, I'd love to know what your perspective is on the role of a search investor and how that's changed over time. And perhaps what you think that might evolve into over the next few years? Yeah, I, I, in the early days, there was only one variation of search. It was traditional search. Uh, yeah, there were a small number of investors and an even smaller number of searchers every year. So almost by definition, every search investor had small portfolios, even if they backed every searcher that came out and raise the search or, or bought a company, they would only have a couple searchers at a time and a few businesses, three, four, five, six businesses at a time. So they could be, each search investor could be really involved, hands-on, helpful. And I've heard stories from some of the first 10, 15 searchers about just how closely they worked with their investors and, and how valuable that was to them. As search has grown, the number of investors has certainly increased. But as we all know, the number of searchers is, has shot up like a rocket. And, and now you see a lot of search investors with really sizable portfolios. It's not uncommon for a search investor, whether it be a fund or a family office or individual, to have 40, 50, 60 searchers and 40, 50, 60, 70 portfolio companies. And 
as a result, there's no question, I see it all the time, the degree of collaboration, partnership, mentorship has has declined significantly on average. And so you have a lot of search investors that you know really don't have bandwidth to even you know, respond to email questions, return phone calls, let alone sort of dig into due diligence, forget about you know, having capacity to serve on a board post-close. And I, and I think a lot of searchers have, have suffered as a result of not being able to get the same degree of, of support and guidance that searchers in the early days did. And that really was a big inspiration for, start, for our starting this second iteration of Footbridge Partners, David and I, was to, in our own way, and, and do our part in being really collaborative, really engaged, really helpful partners. And, and that's how we interpret the role of search investor. It's being available by text or Slack or phone uh, or FaceTime or Zoom as, as readily and easily as possible, going on site, meeting with the sellers, helping negotiate the deal from LOI stage all the way through the purchase agreement, really engaging on due diligence to make sure this, the searcher doesn't find themselves in a, in a difficult spot post-close, and being that sort of indispensable accessible board member after the deal closes. And that's our approach. I think it's more old school. But I, I do think as you as we look ahead, I'm hearing more and more from searchers that that they want that type of value added, engaged investor. And I do think we're going to see the pendulum swing back to you know closer engagement. And I think that'll be a great thing for the entire search ecosystem great for searchers. I think it'll be better for deal returns, and I think it'll, it'll end up in the in the right place over time. It may it may take a couple of years to get there, but I think we'll get there. Do you think that hands on role from investors is something that could be scaled across a portfolio that you mentioned earlier between forty and seventy searchers, perhaps, with either just hiring more associates at the firm level to help? searchers on, on an ongoing basis? Or do you think that scales at all? Or do you think that's something that has to stay, almost by definition, has to stay small, like a boutique investment firm, perhaps? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it scales. I'm sure other firms would disagree with me, but I, I don't think it scales. And your idea about hiring junior folks to assist with searchers and CEOs is a logical one. And I, that that's done today. The issue, and I hear this from searchers all the time, is that you can throw a body at them, but if that if that person hasn't run a business or been through the search journey themselves or doesn't have that the requisite experience to give sound, you know, seasoned advice and guidance, I I, I don't know how valuable that that extra body is. And I don't, I don't want to be you know, disrespectful to associates at search investment firms, but I just don't, I don't think it's the same. So I, I don't, I don't really think it, I don't really think it scales and some things just don't scale and that's, and that's, and that's okay. There are, I, I think it, you can have a, you know, very fruitful investment strategy, search investment firm without, without an army of, of associates to, to send it out into the world. 
Yeah, certainly. And there's a number of misconceptions within traditional search that that we've discussed either through calls or email. I'd love to hear a little bit about those and just break some of those down that you've that you've come up with or thought about over time. Sure. One of the big ones that I hear today is that traditional search has become too competitive. Some people will will point to the number of searchers out there and say the space is just too crowded. I, I personally think that that's that couldn't be more off the mark. If you do, if you look at the number of searchers, yes, there are way more searchers, way more traditional searchers than there ever have been. But it's a drop in the bucket when you compare it to the number of small businesses out there that maybe targets for for acquisition. Others will say, well, what about independent sponsors and lower middle market private equity or even larger private equity firms doing add-ons for smaller businesses? We continue to see great opportunities to buy really attractive businesses at really attractive multiples across our portfolio, our average entry multiple. Despite buying businesses with three, four, five, six million dollars of EBITDA is is just below five times. And I think a lot of I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that. And I think that would sort of go against some of the misconceptions out there about about traditional search. There are still sellers who really value the the idea of having a successor talented entrepreneur come in and take the reins and take care of their team and their and their baby. And, and there are a lot of sellers out there that frankly just have a number in mind. They, they want $10 million for their business. They want $20 million for their business. And you know, often that translates into a crazy multiple, but it also sometimes translates into a, a pretty reasonable multiple. Other misconceptions I, that I hear about, this idea that as compared to other forms of entrepreneurship through acquisition, in traditional search, you're not really an owner. You're more an employee with an option pool. You're not really an owner because you can own only up to 25 or 30% of the business. But I think if you took a, if you actually pulled searchers that, that go down the traditional search path, ask them if they, if they feel like an owner, if they feel like it's their baby, I think it takes probably two weeks post-close and, and searchers feel like it's, it's their show. And it really is. A good board is there to be you know, endlessly available and helpful, but searchers have so much autonomy, authority. 99% of the decisions are made by them because they need to be made quickly and by the person on the ground. And there's, they're really this, this idea that they're not true owners. I just don't think really fits with fits with reality. In terms of other misconceptions, you know, these are somewhat critical of the of the traditional search model, but you know, I think there is this misconception that if you raise search capital, that you're by definition a more credible buyer in the eyes of a seller or an intermediary, because you already have some backing and people that have come or put money behind you. But I think the reality is a, a lot of sellers, a lot of intermediaries are pretty darn skeptical of any type of searcher, traditional, self-funded, 
you name it. And I, I don't think it buys you a ton of credibility. It certainly doesn't hurt. And if you're able to use your investors well and bring them into the fold, you can help yourself. But just to think that because you put some investors on your website and throw some logos of, of search investors firms on your website, it's it's not going to do a whole lot to help you, your credibility in the eyes of a, of a seller or intermediary. And last, last but not least, I would say that I think there's an assumption by some that if you raise search capital, if you get people to write search capital checks to fund your search, that you're guaranteed to get a lot of coaching and mentoring and support. And that's certainly not the case. You absolutely can get that if you're intentional about the investors that you choose. And if you're proactive about seeking out their support. But I, I think of it similar, similar to when you're in college. If you don't go to office hours for your professors or you don't you know, proactively reach out to them, you probably won't develop much of a relationship with them. So it's really, it's, it's, I think it's up to the searcher, again, to be intentional about who they select as investors, if they're in the position to select their investors, and then try to make the most out of, out of that. But it's not, it's not guaranteed that just because you have people writing you a, a check for search capital that you're going to get their mind share. Yeah, of course. And you mentioned earlier one of your misconceptions being that searchers, traditional searchers don't feel as much of an owner because they're a smaller percentage of ownership than maybe a self-funded searcher might be. But of course, you're buying a larger business. So your equity is probably fair, more comparable than just looking at percentages. But one point that we talked about in that sense is traditional searchers, you've you've seen a lot are buying larger and larger businesses where the model starts to at least show some kinks in the armor. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the risks that you see in searchers buying continually larger and larger businesses. Like, like at what point did problems start to show up from what you've seen? Sure. And, and I'll, I think I'll, I'll clarify a bit where, where I think the, the issues are. I think part of it is related to size, but I actually think more of it is a function of, or more of the challenges related to searchers paying you know, really high entry multiples. I mean, you'll, you'll see searchers, some searchers these days beat out lower middle market private equity firms on deals, pay some paying well north of 10 times EBITDA for larger businesses, but still, still small businesses in the grand scheme of things, or paying really aggressive multiples of ARR for software businesses. And my my concern about those lofty entry multiples is really twofold. First off, I think search search deals have have an added layer of risk, and that is the transition from a more seasoned, experienced owner operator to a less seasoned, less experienced, often much younger owner operator who in most cases, doesn't know much about the industry that they're entering. And I think a lot of searchers and a lot of search investors will often underestimate that risk, underestimate how important the prior owner was to the business, that 
in many cases, they founded and really built from the ground up and also underestimate how much of a learning curve there is for a searcher. So if you think about the scenario where a searcher pays, you know, beats out a lower middle market private equity firm, pays 12 times EBITDA for a business, you need to grow that business fast in order to justify that, that entry multiple. And the, oftentimes the first year, 18 months, two years, and searchers just finding their way. They're, you know, they'll make some mistakes. They'll lose some customers. They're you know, not able to get in the rhythm of really growing and scaling the business. So you've got big entry multiple. You've got this big learning curve. And that's, that can be a tough, tough combination, especially when you know, the cost of capital is high. Search, search investors are looking for returns in the mid to high 20s and in many cases in the in the 30s from a net IRR perspective. And you know, if you you know pay a big entry multiple, you have a big learning curve and you have you know this high cost of capital with a high expected or required return, that can be a that can be a tough mix of circumstances for for a searcher, particularly a a first time owner operator. Not to mention that you don't have the same degree of downside protection that you do when you when you buy a business for much more modest entry multiple. So we talked about different changes within traditional searchers. What are some interesting changes on the self-funded side that you've started to notice? Maybe new model innovations or different things that self-funded searchers are trying. What, what are some interesting things you've come across? Well, I, I've, I've just seen the... I've seen the terms on self-funded deals become, in my opinion, more and more out of whack. And I say that with you know a lot of respect for folks involved in this self-funded search world. And I also say that and I encourage self-funded searchers to get the best possible terms that they that they can. But there are a lot of deals where you know you'll see a Investors having only 15, 20% of the upside on a, of the common equity on a transaction. That's, you know, the invert, more than the inverse of, of what you see in, in traditional search. And my sense is that there are a lot of in, newer search investors out there that maybe they learn of search on Think Like an Owner and they find their way to searchfunder.com. They see some self-funded deals. They see an attractive entry multiple. Oh, you can, can't believe it. You can buy this business for three and a half, four times EBITDA. But they don't quite realize that they're not investing in an asset class that's remotely similar to traditional search. You know, they might be excited by the returns that they saw in the Stanford study with all the data points. But th- what they're getting is a vastly different security. They're getting, maybe they're getting an 8%, maybe they're getting a 10% preferred return, and they're getting 10, 15, 20% of the upside. That's dramatically different. It's, that's, that's closer to debt you know, with warrants than it is a really you know, owning and, and having a significant amount of the upside, more of like an equity investment that you'll see with traditional search. And so I, I have concerns about 
those deals. I, I'm very pro searcher. I want searchers to get the best deals that they possibly can, but I think it's, an, you know, every searcher also wants to put their investors in, the, I think, put their investors in the best possible position to, to get great returns too. And I think the, the, the terms have become so skewed that I, I worry that there are going to be a lot of unsatisfied investors who didn't quite appreciate some of the nuances of the deals that they were entering into. And on top of that, you also have a lot of, in a lot of these search deals, these self-funded search deals, you have searchers that don't have a, a lot by way of you know, accountability. So a lot of them don't have boards of directors. They're very light in terms of reporting requirements. You know, I think sometimes governance can be a nuisance to an operator, but I do think more often than not, it can be helpful, and especially for a first-time owner-operator. So I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about what the next few years will look like in terms of self-funded search. I'm concerned that there will be a number of deals that go sort of wrong or sideways, investors that get burned. Hopefully, things will sort of settle in a reasonable spot, but I'm not particularly optimistic about a lot of the deals that are getting done these days. Not to be too much of a pessimist. Well, what are some ways that a a self-funded searcher or a first-time self-funded search investor could protect themselves or get a sense for what's market so that I know kind of roughly what I'm doing? At least I have a better... I'm, I'm a little bit more informed about the decision I'm about to make. What are some ways that you could get more informed or uh, protect yourself better? Yeah, I, I think start with the governance and accountability piece. I think it's perfectly reasonable for these self-funded deals, even if the economic structure is different, for there to be there to be solid governance in place. Make sure that there's a board of directors. Make sure that you know, the searcher you know, has to deliver a budget each year that's reviewed and approved, that there's oversight over their comp. So annual cash comp so that is handled in an appropriate way that's that's fair for for everybody involved I, I hope that search investors newer search investors looking at these self-funded deals ask to see the model ask to see the excel backup behind the return projections that are that are being displayed in the materials and so they can see okay well Yes, they're buying it that, at buying this company at an attractive entry multiple, but because of this economic structure that's being proposed, you need to grow this business at a remarkable clip, uh, at a tremendous growth rate in order to generate the type of return that I would would find attractive. So, really making sure they understand sort of all the components that and all the assumptions that are underlying the return projections that are being you know, displayed in the in the materials, and then what what could a searcher do? I would I would argue that most searchers are you know on the earlier end of their career. Some are not, but let's just we'll go with the example of a searcher in their late twenties, early thirties. A searcher should they should take a step back and think about balancing both their economic opportunity, the terms that they can get with wanting to 
put up an, an awesome outcome, a great return for their investors. And they're, I think in most deals, there's a, there's a happy medium. There's a happy middle ground between, between those, those two objectives. And even if you can get terms where as a searcher, you keep 85% of the, the common equity. And what, what does that mean? What does that imply for your investors? Are you setting them, them up for success? Or is it, would it be better to, to have a different split in order to, to balance your own economic opportunity and the reasonable return expectations for your investors? So I, I would encourage searchers to, to give that a little bit more thought and you know, try to solve for that happy medium. Yeah, I would imagine there's kind of that embedded incentive to get the best possible deal you can, but there's also the risk that you run into problems or concerns and conflict, perhaps with your investors later down the road, if those issues weren't worked out at the start, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, would, I would also in, and encourage self-funded searchers to, to go out of their way to to bring on a board of directors to put in good practices, best practices around governance and to invite accountability because it can be a lot more helpful than it can, than it can be harmful or, or a nuisance. Yeah. You mentioned a few different items that come out in, in board meetings over the course of a year, a, a budget being one of them and then quarterly reporting on some, on some degree as an investor, what sorts of, numbers, metrics are you looking and what kinds of reporting are you looking for a searcher to send your way either quarterly or annually? So we're in all in all deals that we do at, at as Footbridge, we're on the we're on the board of directors. That's you know just our model of being more hands-on and engaged. And so I I'll speak as a as a board member and what we're looking for is as much as is it as much as it's important to see financial performance it's even more important to to see really KPIs you know really understanding what metrics the the operators are are tracking so we can have a better better sense for for where the wind is blowing and and how we can be how we can be helpful oftentimes what happened over the last 12 months you know, is is not going to be indicative of what's going to happen over the next twelve months. So, certainly financial performance, but also understanding what what KPIs they're tracking and and keeping an eye on those, just with with the goal of being helpful. But also big big strategy questions. And there's an issue with a an important customer. There's an issue with a key employee. There's a some concern or question around the business model, or there's an identity or who do we want to be? What do we want to be three, four years from now? Those are all those are all great questions and pieces of information that that we want and we invite. And so yes, there's a there's sort of a formal there's formal reporting, there's financials, there's operating metrics, but there's also a good board uh, searcher relationship involves an ongoing dialogue on any number of issues. And I think for, for a board member that's not a, or sorry, for an investor that's not a board member, I think the baseline expectation is 
financials and sort of a quarterly written update so that you can stay sort of apprised of of the some of the the bigger developments but i don't think it's necessarily reasonable to expect much more than that yeah and Footbridge is kind of a unique model where you focus on a couple searchers versus having a larger portfolio. So perhaps your numbers are a little skewed, but I'd be I'd be curious how much time or how frequently you communicate with each of your searchers. Is it are you trying to do something that's close to weekly or monthly, or is it more just impromptu as you as needed? Are there certain baseline communication frequencies you're trying to set up with your searchers? So there's no yeah there's no one. There's no one cadence. I'd say, you know, if I, on average, we probably have a f- formal standing call, whether it be during the search or operating phase every other week. But that's just, that represents a small, you know, percentage of the overall interaction that we have with searchers. We have very robust back and forths on Slack. We're on the phone a lot. We're texting quite a bit. I'm not sure what inspires somebody to send a text versus a Slack, but that's another that's another conversation. But I, I think I, I looked at, I think it was Q3 2021, we had over 5,500 Slack messages exchanged with searchers. So it's it's an ongoing, and there's, there's a lot more asynchronous conversation and communication than there is, you know, formal standing calls. But we we have, you know, a good amount of both. So is, is your Slack channel your entire group of searchers all communicating together in one channel? Or do you have different channels for different industries or sets of your portfolio? Different, yeah, different channels. So I'd say most of the activity actually happens just searcher to me and David. But there are some some messages that are posted to the the broader group. But it's been it, it's been an evolution for us. Dave, David and I are not as as tech savvy as as some of the the younger searchers that we work with. So, but we're 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 getting we're getting better at Slack, I should say. Well, I asked you in the first episode for the three closing questions, and your two of the three will stand. But wanted to get a new answer for what's the best business you've ever seen. I believe you a new one popped up in your in your mind. I'd love to hear a little bit about that one. Yeah, absolutely. I've got to give some love to the Skin Center, which is the med spa business that we that we own and is led by Greg Sanker. And I'll also give credit to the founder, founding brothers, Nick Brandy and and Jerry Brandy for, for getting the, the business started over 40 years ago. But I, this 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 whole med spa category and the skin center in particular, I, I just absolutely fallen in love with you've got a tremendous amount of repeat almost like recurring revenue people i don't know if you're a botox user i probably will be at some point in the next couple of years my wife tells me that i i should get on the botox train but if you if you do botox or filler it's not just something you do once it's something you know botox is a quarterly pursuit and filler is every 9 or 12 months the unit, the unit economics are just are just phenomenal and the trends are incredible the sort of secular industry trends are just are just incredible it's hard to find a category that is has the same growth clip and enduring really enduring growth as that you've seen with 
with aesthetics and, and cosmetics. It's been growing for for a very long time and, and it does not appear to be letting up. In fact, it seems to be accelerating. So just just thrilled with how that that business is performing it and uh, the team there is awesome. It's really dominated the Pittsburgh market and has a presence in Ohio and you'll be seeing more of it around the country as time progresses. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. It's always good to hear from you and hear updates on Footbridge and the different companies you're investing in and all this stuff. So thank you so much for sharing. This has been really fun. Thank you, Alex. Had a great time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.